As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lot podcast, the first for 2017. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, I'm really excited about our episode today because, of course, in the last episode, we did the look back for 2016, where we mm-hmm. had uh, some of our colleagues tell us their favorite stories of the year. But it's always fun and challenging to make predictions and to look forward. The, uh, the future is pretty difficult to figure out. 2016 was, of course, a very tough year to have called correctly in many ways. And I think it's a good mental exercise to try. I, You know, it's always sort of foolish, but I, I'm a strong believer that people should make an attempt to say what the future holds. Right. So this is the this is the tough episode, right? This is where people have to um, exercise their mental muscles. They have to think rationally and um, all for the purposes of being exposed to ridicule and shame when we're inevitably wrong 12 months from now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's (laughs) a lot of journalists are sort of anti predictions. They think it's a foolish thing. They think that it's always going to be wrong. But I just I I think that's missing the point. I think it's a uh, it's a good mental exercise and it's sort of what you predict is an insight into how you've digested what you've seen so far. And it's just fun to say things that could be proven right or wrong. Okay. Well, in the spirit of fun, uh, let's let's go to our, our panelists. With us for uh, the second episode in a row, we heard them tell their favorite stories of 2016. Now we're forcing them to go out and tell us, look at their crystal balls, what exactly is going to happen in 2017. Uh, Joining us this week, we have Ed Hammond, who covers deals for Bloomberg News. Hey, Joe. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming back. Mike Regan, who covers markets for Bloomberg News, he has launched a new Markets Live blog venture for terminal users. Happy New Year. Thank you. Max Abelson, our uh, Wall Street expert, a Wall Street whisperer, as I think I described him. Thank you for coming back. I can't wait to hear your call for the year. Thanks, Joe. 
Megan Murphy, who covered politics for Bloomberg all year and now has taken on a new mission as editor of Business Week. Thank you for coming on. Can't wait to get your prediction. Excited about it. See if uh, uh, 2017 will be as crazy as it was for politics or whatever as 2016 was. And Dan Moss, who uh, has a great track record of predictions. Uh, Thanks for coming back again. Great to be here. And Ed, uh, why don't you... uh, Tell us about your uh, prediction for 20, 2017. Well, I think crystal I'll, ball. What, yeah. What's going to be this year's sprayathon? Yeah, well, I think last year I just went with the kind of stock M and A banker nonsense of you know we're going to see more deals in in twenty sixteen, and and we didn't see more deals in twenty sixteen. We did see lots of twenty fifteen deals get blown up, which was uh, was quite interesting. I think almost six hundred billion of deals that was uh, that was struck in twenty fifteen were sort of torpedoed in um, in twenty sixteen. What's my prediction for this year? I think um, I think Nigel Farage, um, the sort of Ooh. populist, uh, slightly right wing um, political figure in the UK, is going to end slightly. up in a. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, slightly by I suppose by global standards, by UK standards, I would say extremely. Uh, I think he's going to end up in a celebrity-based reality TV competition. Get me out Ooh. of the jungle. Or I, I was actually thinking Celebrity Apprentice because it would fit well with his sort of <laughs> Trump-loving persona. Um, so that, that's my prediction. I think he is going to finally bow out from politics for a career in reality television. That's a good one. Did you vote in the referendum? Yes, I did. I went home to vote in a referendum. That's how serious I, I took it. I did as well. It was quite, quite depressing. Being in London the day after was like the world had ended because obviously London was desperately against this. And not only that, they had had their recently departed mayor be the sort of flag bearer for the uh, for the for the brexiteers and that was i think very very depressing obviously for all concerned all right well i love that prediction because it's concrete and at the end of the year we can actually test very clearly whether it happened or not max abelson what is your prediction for 2017 well joe because i'm a complicated man i've got some complicated predictions for 2017 Let's talk about New York City. I've got a prediction for New York City. When uh, when Jesse and Zach Miter and I wrote our story on Trump Tower, which you may remember, a couple yep. months ago. Great story. Everybody should go look it up. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. One of Donald Trump's friends, uh, an Italian man, a man who says he's a count, actually, although we couldn't confirm that independently. <laughs> he's uh, he's a friend of Trump's. He's uh, He lives in the building. He's in the uh, far right. Uh, he's affiliated with far right Italian politics. He predicted to us, he said, if Donald Trump wins the election, I believe he's not going to be able to leave Trump Tower because he loves it so much. So I'm stealing his prediction. Of course, that was before the election. I'm stealing it to turn into a post-election prediction that after Donald Trump becomes president, sure, he'll, he'll be in the White House, but I predict he is going to spend a ton of time here in New York City on Fifth Avenue. All right. We need to d- say an exact number of nights that he spend and so that we can see if he gets it right. So over... What's the line? All right. Well, let, let's say there are 52 weeks. Yeah. Friday and Saturday. You know, that's 100. Yeah. Just over 100. Could you imagine if you spent more than 100 nights in New York City? In over, so that, that, would, that would be one year. Okay. Let's say four years, 100 nights in New York. Wait. So just 25 nights a year? That's a lot. Mm. Okay. All right. All right. It seems right. like you're setting the bar a little low Fair to enough. claim victory. How about in the prediction? F- fifty? No, you got it. It's got to be higher because just vacations alone mm. and stuff like that. Good point. Let's go for the first year. Okay. Okay. This is an eccentric. eccentric More prediction. or less than fifty. More. Okay. So in, this is we're going to test at the end of 2017. 
Max Abelson will have been right if Trump spent more than 50 nights at Trump Tower. It's a bold prediction, but we're bold bold people here. No, I, I really like it. And given the, uh, the issues that will cause New York in terms of security and traffic and everything, it's a prediction that has ramifications. Did you see that uh, Tiffany and co. Yes. branded the police barri- barricades? Brilliant. And, you know, analysts have come out. And warned that because that Tiffany store, which is right there at Trump Tower, right next to it, is their flagship store, it could materially hit uh, earnings <laughs> due to the proximity next to Trump. It's not clear that that's actually developing, but that is a concern of analysts. Capitalism is amazing. Only only in New York City would you have that baby blue Tiffany on the on the police barricades. All right, Max Abelson, great prediction, uh, and looking forward to seeing if it turns out right or wrong. All right, uh, Mike Regan. What is your prediction for 2017? You're our uh, markets maven on the panel. Uh, what are we going to be? Uh, what's the story going to be? Well, I- I'm going to make a very cliche prediction. Ugh, I, nice know, I know, and I know. And I also say I'm not 100% confident in this, but you, you do say go out on the limb. <laughs> I do think we will finally see, if not a bear market in stocks, a, a very sharp correction. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Everybody and their brother has become so optimistic about the Trump administration. It's interesting to me. Here was a guy that from day one as a politician was underestimated. You know, oh, he's not going to win a single state in the primaries. He's not going to take the primaries. Oh, he'll never win the election. And the, the sort of intersection of politics and markets this year has been very fascinating. Um and both saw basically the the death of conventional wisdom. You know, all the the poll numbers and Brexit, uh, you know, turned out to be wrong. Not all of them, but the you know the consensus, uh, Trump. The you know, no one really thought he would win. Uh, that turned out to be wrong. Now I just feel like everyone's gone to the opposite side of the boat. They're they're way too optimistic. Uh, you know, I keep hearing the phrase "animal spirits." Ray Dalio uh, used it recently to describe this exuberance over his policies, and I just think um, you know we've had this huge rally at the end of the year. Now I uh, went from flat uh, flat stock market to up ten percent. Lazo Barini, who's a uh, money manager, uh, an analyst who uh, you know I have a lot of uh, uh, interest in, very very smart guy describes the phases of a bull market and that exuberance phase where you have this really last giant rally at the end mm. is, is often the sign of of the end of the bull market. And, and when I say a, a possible bear market, I don't think – I'm not even sure the, the market will – well, if we talk about the market next December, it'll be down that much on the year. But during the year, I just feel like there's bound to be some disappointment that will cause a, maybe a 10 to 20% drop in the market. Can I just jump in Please, on that? I was just going to say, as someone who yeah. had, was on the Trump beat all year, I feel like you'd be I perfect I think that Mike is exactly right in that the biggest phenomenon in the sort of arc of storytelling of 2016, both in terms of Brexit and in terms of the U.S. election, is just – the inability of people to correctly price what was actually going on um, in terms of, of how this would turn out. And I think that the one thing that I think you have to never underestimate his ability to seemingly unbelievably against sort of all expectations of normalcy, normal discourse, normal policy decision making to sort of bump along in a sort of vaguely positive way. And when, when I, I think the biggest risk to the market is going to be big political risk. You know, we look at the drone that happened or or some type of incident in the Middle East or ISIS. But I think that when you look at his policy and what he's been able to do in the first sort of 
you know, six months, nine months, if we do see the Affordable Care Act getting scaled back, if we do see a comprehensive tax reform package getting put through, if we do see an infrastructure that actually, you know, for me, when I look at it, I can't decide whether the risk is to the upside or the downside. <laughs> you know, in terms of domestic policy, I see the market to the upside and I see corporates really seeing, you know, repatriation, investment and sort of sentiment being buoyed. But then this really incalculable political um, foreign policy disaster possibility that the market really does not seem to be pricing in right now. And I see that as a huge downside risk that no one's quite grappling with. Right. Absolutely. You, Even if it just ends up being China stops buying treasuries, for example, uh, you know, as a sort of protest measure. But, you know, to me, even the, from the policy standpoint, I mean, it's hard for me to believe uh, that this is a Trump Congress. It's still a Republican-controlled mm. Congress. And it, it's hard for me to believe that all these Republicans are going to turn into Keynesians all of a sudden and agree to blow out the deficit um, after shutting the government down because of the deficit, uh, you know, in yeah. this last term. Well, they turned into Keynesians under George W. Bush, yeah. who inherited a surplus from Bill Clinton and a situation where the U.S. was actually talking about buying back debt. Right, right. Right. So they can get religion. And that's not a reflection of their increasingly South base. They can get religion, no pun intended, quite quickly. But, Megan, to your point, I wonder whether we in the media, let's acknowledge that, and financial markets have had difficulty pricing risk because we are concentrated um, in the Northeast and the West Coast and in the UK concentrated in the London area. So to an extent, we were talking among ourselves there aren't that many financial heavyweight Wall Street prognosticators based in Appalachia, and there aren't that many based in Stoke-on-Trent. Is that part <laughs> to our of detriment? It, is I, that part of what's happened absolutely. here? Absolutely. I mean, I think we have to be completely candid about that. I think we have to be completely candid about how this dynamic has completely upended the convention of reporting. And, and frankly, some people just cannot accept that. They cannot accept what they what they fail to accept is that people who live in different parts of the country are frankly less progressive, not just on a sort of um, social mores, things like abortion or LGBT rights. They're just less progressive in time in terms of believing in a vision of the country that is very different than the Obama vision, than the Tony Blair vision of this country happened. And I think that is what the election really reawakened is that, guess what? What you think in New York is very different than what people think in not just Appalachia, but the suburbs of Milwaukee, the suburbs, mm. some of the northern suburbs of Philadelphia. So there hasn't been that great, let's call it the great rotation in media. We'll have to see if disruptive forces really upend this landscape going forward. How many Americans have passports? I'm Googling it as we speak. That's <laughs> cheating. Um, wait, wait. Let's get our, let's get our I'm, guesses I'm in. I'm going there. Pass, Joe, passport guesses in. What percentage? Uh, 40%. I'm going to go 25%. And I'm going there, Megan, because of that group you described that you categorized as less progressive than people on the Northeast or people on the West Coast. Do they also care less about the world and have less interest in its complexity and its rich tapestry. That's why I asked the passport question. It's 36%, according to the 2013 oh. statistic. Ah, Joe wins. But I think that, you know, this is why I've always strongly resisted the 
the, the sort of move to characterize this as ignorant or less worldly. It isn't. It's just that people are familiar with what they're familiar in. A lot of people who voted for Trump live in less diverse communities. That's just a fact. That's not a negative or a positive. And the attempt to sort of put some normative um, mm. stance on this, that there's somehow less or, you know, that there's a good or a bad, I think that's sort of the trap the media falls into. And I don't think they're less interested. I think they're just... They have less experience with the rich tapestry, as you so eloquently put it, Dan, um, the rich tapestry of, of the world. But yeah, th- that doesn't make it a good thing or a bad thing. Megan, can we get your, your prediction for 2017? Yeah, unsurprisingly, it's going to keep a little bit into politics. But um, I think that uh, we will see, um, again, a mispricing of political risk in 2017, particularly in Europe. I was actually going through Goldman's. Mm predictions this morning, and and we have Theresa May speaking right now, and I think there's a real chance of um, an outlier event in Germany, France, or the UK. I think in France... Yes, of course, Fillon will, we, we assume, will win in a, run, you know, in a second round against uh, Marine Le Pen. And in Germany, this expectation of a grand coalition, I think Merkel is going to face real challenges. I think that people are a little bit too sanguine about that. But I think the U.K. is a real going to be really one to watch this year. I think when, you know, Theresa May... Yeah, is vulnerable in terms of where the UK economy is going to directionally trend. And I think that that is still a story um, that's going to play out. And I think we're going to see some real, real convulsions in Europe politically, not just because of populism, but because of just simple, really, really bad politics. What would a tail risk in the UK look like? Because already people assume that there's going to be Article 50 is triggered uh, sometime in the early part of the year, and then there's going to be a very tough negotiation. What would be a scenario that people aren't thinking could happen? Well, I think that we it's been so buffeted by, you know, booming retail sales, right. by, you know, um, sort of consumer confidence, by people actually not yet understanding what Brexit. I think once we get a few announcements such as, you know, big corporates leaving, big banks taking out, they know that's going to happen. And, and But I think the reality of that happening and the reality of sort of, um, you know, an ability to forge a new manufacturing community in the north, you know, or all this sort of a technological investment in making Britain a, a hub of entrepreneurship and you know tech innovation. That's not going to happen. So mm. people that and 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 that's and that's the realism of, of it sinking in over time. And I think that Britain's, um, I think you know, obviously as Dan knows and everyone who's as Tracy knows, house price is such a bedrock of the British economy. We see further declines in that, particularly in the higher end market, which essentially supports a large degree of London. We have to remember, you know, financial services GDP in London alone is still hovers at something like 40% across the country. It's 11% still. You know, a real erosion in that market is over. And I think over the next 12 months, we will see that is going to be uh, causes a severe, severe disruptive element. How do you think Theresa May is doing, Megan? The government seems to tilt one way one week on Brexit, but on other issues as well, then tilt the other way the next week. It's probably fair to say she didn't begin this year anticipating she would be in number 10 at Christmas. How is she doing? I mean, I think when you talk to people, I mean, I don't want to give my own verdict, but I think when you talk to people, when you talk to sort of, you know, other senior, very senior politicians, her her peers or senior corporate leaders in Britain or corporate leaders in America, they are stunned by the seemingly lack of ability to stick to a single plan, by the sort of 
Article 50 hardline to a softening once you see, you know, sort of by-election results and 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 the conservatives, uh, you know, sort of responding on a dime to how the sentiment is. She does seem to be policy by a central underlying moral compass that the Brexit vote was, you know, a vote to leave, that there's no going back for that. I think they run a real risk of that, that as the economy I don't want to say weakens, but in certain sections deteriorates as, you know, uh, Sterling continues, you know, to remain where it's at, that, you know, you cannot take a single event, even as an, an event as, you know, cataclysmic as Brexit was, and ignore the reality, the economic reality facing your country and your people and trying to reforge an independent Britain. That will increasingly weigh on her, and she's going to have to have smarter people around her, and she's going to have to make much smarter decisions. Is she getting a pass on this because Labour is so weak? <laughs> weak is not even a to begin to describe it in terms of formulating a credible, and I'm not talking in terms of party because party membership is up, but in terms of forming a credible policy counterpoint to her, yes, she's getting a pass because, you know, that, that party is so splintered, particularly among the elite of the Labour Party, not being able to weigh in and be effectual. But I think the UK, again, just continues to be one to watch. Just more, it's just a fascinating political um, journey right now. All right. Uh, I like this call. I, uh, so another year of political risk uh, this time in Europe. Dan Moss, uh, you have a little bit of pressure on you with your 2017 prediction because your 2016 prediction ended up being really, really good. <laughs> so um, you've set the bar high for yourself. What is it? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Donald Trump will reappoint Janet Yellen as Fed chair. Ooh. Hmm. Wow. Now, technically speaking, Janet Yellen's term does not expire to January 31, 2018. However, typically by the end of the year before, the president of the day has uh, made his choice known. And I'm shaped somewhat by history here um, and somewhat by what we can ascertain so far from what the president-elect has been saying and doing. First, the history. President's regardless of what is said on a campaign trail, tend to love low interest rates when they're in office. There is also a track record in recent decades of reappointing chairs appointed by your predecessor. 1983, Ronald Reagan was under some pressure to replace Paul Volcker. Jim Baker, looking at the election climate, thought, no, let's keep Volcker. The last thing we want is a market upset as we're getting ready to run for re-election. Uh, it was thought that Bill Clinton at some point might appoint a Democrat. Instead, he reappointed Greenspan, not once, but twice. Barack Obama reappointed Ben Bernanke. And Ben Bernanke wasn't interested in a second term, so that gave Obama the opening uh, to appoint um, his own Fed chair. So I'm somewhat informed by history here. The other thing is, look, it's probably fair to say, and Megan can guide me here, Consistency has not necessarily been um, a hallmark of this political season. Not of this political season, but interestingly, of Donald Trump since his election. One of the things I've been most fascinated by is people saying, oh, my God, I can't believe we have all these generals and Wall Street people and, and corporate leaders aboard the cabinet. It's like that's what he said he was going to do. He was going to go to the military. He believed in a different approach and getting corporate leaders. He has actually executed completely consistently his tweeting policy by tweet, this sort of crazy uh, sort of early morning. That's what he's been doing all along. I think more people now are just waking up and seeing it. So I think you're completely right in that consistency hasn't been a hallmark of the season writ large. But of the approach he's taken, 
this is who he is, and I definitely don't expect him to change for four more years. I'm glad you mentioned tweeting. There was a lot of speculation before December's FOMC meeting, where they finally raised interest rates, that the president-elect would start tweeting about the Fed. Mm. Didn't happen. Silence from the BlackBerry. Megan, can we infer anything in that? I think that you can infer nothing from his tweet policy. I think it's more if he's paying attention and what the New York Post has said or what he's agitated about. You know, he tweets mostly over agitation. <laughs> so we'll have to see. I think that I think nothing is safe. Nothing is safe, and nothing is not safe from this. And I, I you know, I think only in twenty years' time where we we'll be able to look back and sort of really evaluate how the political landscape has been transformed by people talking about sort of China and drones or, you know, you know, literally in the only medium being Twitter. Dan, I really I, I think there's a great call because, again, another one of these calls will be able to say this either happened or didn't happen. And it's definitely counterintuitive. I've been in the camp that there's a, a big clash that we'll inevitably see between the Fed and the administration this year. But uh, I like your contrarian take. And just in case People don't realize what Dan's call was for 2016. Exactly a year ago, Brazil was in all sorts of economic and political turmoil. And he said that uh, Brazil would recover. And I'm looking at WCRS right now on the terminal, which is the world currency ranking uh, um, function. And the Brazilian real is the second best of the major currents of all countries in the entire world for 2016. Only the Russian ruble did better this year. So... Hats off to you. Great call. And that's why we saved the best for last. Well, here comes my get out clause. Oh, no. Oh, don't do it. Don't ruin no, it. No, don't. Don't ruin don't, it. Don't, Dan. You're good. Don't, no, no caveats. No caveats. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Great, uh, great stories and great predictions. And we'll be back here next year to see who is right and who is wrong. Ed Hammond, thank you. Thank you. Mike Regan, appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And you don't have to square my prediction. <laughs> no, I definitely will. Uh, Max Abelson, thanks a lot. Uh, my pleasure. Megan Murphy, Business Week editor, thank you. Thank you. And Dan Moss, our uh, top eco, uh, our top eco person who nailed your 2016 call. We'll see if you could repeat it in 2017. He's hoping. Okay, Joe, um, I've been taking notes. I've got these all written down so that we can come back in 12 months Good. and see whether or not they were correct. I know that's not necessarily in the spirit of things, um, but I, I can't hold back my journalistic impulses to, to hold everyone to account. No, we absolutely have to hold everyone to account. And we have to uh, publicly shame the people who got them <laughs> wrong and the people who got them right. We want them. We want to loudly trumpet their brilliance, so that for the rest of their lives they can say, "I was the person on the Odd podcast who got 2017 exactly right." That's true. That should be on their business cards. I really liked some of the specificity of the calls. That you know, the Janet Yellen will mm -hmm. she be uh, reappointed or not? I mean, that's like a very black or white uh, question. Or will Nigel Farage appear on a reality show like Dancing with the Stars or something? It'll be very easy in 2017 to look back and say this was either correct or not. Nigel Farage on Dancing with the Stars, yeah. Um, you can totally see that's it, can't a good, you? Yeah, oh, I totally can. It's a good one. Um, you know, the one that I liked quite a lot was uh, Mike Regan's call on a stock market correction um, because, you know, you can see it sort of 
coming towards the end of 2016, the fact that people were getting so enthused about all these Trump-related things that were yet to happen, you know, publishing their outlooks, talking about massive fiscal stimulus, everyone really hanging on to that new market narrative, um, the one we discussed with Mark Cudmore a a little bit before then. Yes. Um, it, it, It just astounded me how quickly everything changed. Absolutely. And I really liked uh, the way Mike brought in Laszlo Berigny's framework Mm. of the various stages of a bull market. Uh, And this idea that what we're seeing now is a uh, finally exuberance, because we've had an incredible bull market for almost seven years now. No, more than seven years now. And it has a reputation of being a hated bull market because people missed it. The they, most uh, hated didn't bull really market. Believe, the most hated bull market. And it feels like perhaps with the uh, latest leg up that finally some of the haters are coming over into the lovers category and that after all these gains, suddenly now they feel reasons to get bullish and that the animal spirits are awake, which is kind of hilarious. Like maybe you should have had that view uh, seven years ago. But Joe, as you like to point out, like capitulation is usually the the, the final thing yeah. that happens right before it, it all right. falls apart. So if everyone begins to feel optimistic, if the bears really start to go into hibernation, that's probably when we need to be careful. Well, on that uh, sort of <laughs> cautious, slightly gloomy note, uh, welcome to... 2017 everyone thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode of the odd lots podcast i'm joe weisenthal you can follow me on twitter at the stalwart and i'm tracy alloway i'm on twitter at tracy alloway see you soon Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.